Hello, and welcome to The Uncover-Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Bradke, and joining me today are the hot pepper plants currently soaking up some spring sun on my balcony. Uh, This episode is being recorded in late May of 2021, which means at least two things. One, we're still in lockdown. And two, the American government is allegedly a few weeks away from releasing a stack of files on their formally classified investigations into UFOs. This is all a test. A few things have already happened at this point. Several clips have been released to the media of sensor footage from U.S. Navy fighter planes and ships of unexplained aerial phenomena. According to the Pentagon, the footage is legit, and they don't know what they're looking at. In addition, the U.S. Navy reversed their position on pilots speaking openly about UFO sightings. So a few pilots have come forward to describe their experiences, and those experiences sound bizarre and intriguing, which of course are two of our favorite things. We'll do several deep dives on all of this later in the summer, after Leah Len and I have had a chance to go over the documents that are supposed to be coming out in a few weeks. We've been doing a lot of media appearances lately because of this situation, and I keep getting asked the same question. Are you surprised to hear that fighter planes are getting into encounters with UFOs? And while I am surprised that the Pentagon is admitting it, I'm not surprised at all that it's been happening. Because, as long-term listeners know, fighter planes engaging with UFOs has been happening for decades. Back in World War II, Allied pilots were reporting seeing odd lights outside their planes. Uh, These odd lights became known as Foo Fighters, and have never been adequately explained. One of the most famous examples was in January of 1948, when Captain Thomas Mantell was scrambled in his F-51 after a UFO over Kentucky, and was killed when his plane crashed. The official Air Force explanation was that Mantell had accidentally been chasing Venus, which was obviously a cover-up. Venus would barely have been visible at that time of day and that time of year. When Blue Book investigator Captain Edward Ruppelt looked into the case, it became clear that what had likely actually happened was that a top-secret skyhook balloon had drifted over the state, and Mantell had run out of oxygen in the thin air high over Kentucky. In October of that same year, Lieutenant George Gorman was flying his F-51 over an airport in Fargo when he encountered a strange light in the sky. From his perspective, the light was maneuvering and responding as if it was under intelligent control, but the Blue Book conclusion on that one was that Gorman had gotten disoriented in the darkness and was actually flying around a weather balloon with a light on it. While balloon-related explanations are Lee's least favorite explanation, in these two cases at least they appear to be reasonable, or at least not unreasonable. However, there are other less well-known cases in which an answer doesn't appear to be as easy to find. We've looked at a a few of those cases in previous episodes, the Kinross incident, for example, or the Portage police chase, and today we'll be looking at another one, the Tehran incident of 1976. Because here's the thing, we are now at a place in history in which the American government has announced that UFOs are real, and maybe even a threat. At this point, in May of 2021, the U part of UFO remains fully intact since they are still unidentified. But there are all sorts of possibilities for what might really be going on. For example, and this shouldn't come as a shock to anyone, the Pentagon could just be lying. 
The idea that UFOs could be faked and used as cover for some other project or employed as a kind of psychological warfare operation isn't a new one. We've seen examples of both during the Cold War. Uh, you could check out our episode on Dolce Base and Paul Benowitz for more details. It's also possible that these UFOs are actually examples of human-made tech, but tech so secret and advanced the public is totally unaware of it. For examples of that, check out our episode on Area 51, in which we discuss secret American spy planes that were often mistaken for UFOs. And there are other countries besides the United States that might be working on craft like these. Uh, Russia and China leap to mind. But here's the thing. Some of the UFO sightings that we now have footage of are from 2004, which means that we have to believe not only that this revolutionary technology has been developed by a nation, but that it was developed almost 20 years ago. Since the alleged capabilities of these UFOs is so dramatically advanced over what modern aircraft can do, it starts to get a little harder to believe that they are examples of human-made tech the further in the past that they've appeared. And if we can find legitimate examples of UFOs that date back even earlier, then those examples will continue to chip away at the hypothesis that these UFOs are just human creations. If it's hard to believe that we have these technologies in 2021, it's harder to believe that we already had them in 2004, and extremely difficult to believe that we had them earlier than 1980. Which is why in this episode we're going back to 1976 to examine an event that took place in the sky over the Iranian city of Tehran, in which two phantom F-4 fighter jets got into a dogfight with a UFO. On September 18, 1976, Hossein Peruzi was working as the night supervisor at the Mehrabad airport in Tehran. At about 10.30 at night, he received a phone call from a woman who said that she had seen a strange object in the sky, about 3,000 feet up, that looked like a fan with four blades. She claimed that it was changing color, going from orange to red to yellow, and it was difficult to tell if it was one object or two. Peruzzi didn't think too much of the call, assuming that the woman had likely just misidentified an aircraft or something else in the sky. However, he received another phone call a few minutes later from a woman who claimed to have seen something similar. By 11.15pm, he had received another two phone calls from locals claiming to have seen something odd in the sky. His radar was down for repair, so he went out onto the roof with a pair of binoculars. He saw something that looked like a bright star, but when he used the binoculars, he claimed that he saw a rectangular shape about 6,000 feet overhead, with blue lights on each end and a red light in the center that appeared to be rotating. Peruzzi then called the duty officer, who called General Parviz Yusefi at his home, also in Tehran. General Yusefi went out onto his porch and also saw the object, after which, because he was a general, he ordered the scrambling of an F-4D Phantom jet fighter to intercept the object. And that is all the excuse I need to go on for a little bit about the F-4D Phantom. Uh, one of the many benefits of studying UFO encounters is that it allows me to spend time talking about Cold War airplanes, which is something that my friends and family have little patience for at this point, understandably. The F-4 Phantom, uh, I know technically it was called the Phantom 2, but, but since even I barely remember the Phantom 1, I think we can safely drop that part. The Phantom was an American fighter jet. It was one of the first American jets that was designed not to be a maneuverable dogfighting gunslinger, but more of a fast and powerful missile truck with a radar in its nose to track down and lock in on enemy targets. It was an extremely widely used fighter. The U.S. Air Force and Navy both used it, as did 11 other nations. 
It was the main U.S. fighter during the Vietnam War, and it was still being used by the Americans during the first Gulf War of 1991. It was a brutal-looking airplane, with wing tips and tail fins angled off in inelegant directions. But it was very effective at what it did, and it was a reliable and efficient interceptor. In the 1970s, Iran was still under the Shah's regime, which was friendly to the West, and so the Imperial Iranian Air Force used fighter jets purchased from the United States and Canada. In the late 1970s, President Jimmy Carter would start getting nervous about selling top-of-the-line fighter planes to other countries, but in the early 1970s, the Americans were selling F-4 Phantoms all over the place, like they were on an overstocked used car lot. At this point in the story, with a, a strange sight over Tehran and uh, fighter jets scrambled, we're fortunate to have a fairly extensive report by one of the Iranian Phantom pilots, Squadron Commander Parviz Jafari, who gave an interview to an American investigative journalist named Leslie Keane in 2007. According to his testimony, by the time he arrived at the airbase after being notified of the UFO, another F-4, piloted by Captain Aziz Khani, was already in the air and in pursuit. According to Jafari, as the first F-4 Phantom approached the target, the plane lost communications and instruments. When they called off their approach and turned away, the instruments and communications returned functioning. By that time, Commander Jafari and his backseat radar operator, Lieutenant Demarion, had taken off in their own Phantom. Jafari claimed that he could see the object, brilliantly lit and flying low over the city, and as they approached it, the object started to climb. At this point, Captain Aziz Khani was low on fuel, and Commander Jafari ordered him back to base while he started his own approach of the object. According to Jafari, it was flashing with intense green, blue, orange, and red lights, and the lights were arranged in a diamond shape, although Jafari was unable to see the body of the object that was supporting the lights. The lights were flashing extremely quickly like the strobe lights at a 1970s disco. When Jafari's plane closed to 70 miles, the object jumped in the sky 10 degrees to the right and then did it again. It wasn't just that it was moving fast, claimed Jafari, but it made these movements in an instant. By now, his backseater, Lieutenant Demarion, had the object on his radar screen. Jafari told his radar operator to brake lock and repaint. Basically what that means is he wanted his radar operator to lose radar contact on purpose and then reacquire it to double-check to make sure that the radar wasn't picking up mountains or some kind of interference from the ground. Demarion did so and was able to pick up the object on his screen again with a strong response on the screen. Based on the radar reflections that were bouncing back off of the object, it was about the size of a jet airliner, like a 707. Like I mentioned a few moments ago, the Phantom wasn't designed to get into a close-quarter turning fight with other planes. It was designed to pick them up on radar and direct missiles at them. And this is exactly what Commander Jafari was about to do. With a strong radar lock, Jafari prepared to fire his AIM-7 Sparrow missiles at the UFO. The Sparrow is a medium-range, radar-guided air-to-air missile developed by the Americans, and it had been used with some effectiveness in combat situations during the Vietnam War. With a strong radar lock, Jafari should have been able to fire his sparrows at the target, but when he was about 25 miles away, his weapons refused to fire, and his communications became garbled. At that moment, according to Jafari, he saw a small round object emerge from the UFO and head straight towards his plane in a big hurry. With his radar locked onto the larger target, he couldn't fire a sparrow at this new object. Instead, he switched to his other missiles, AIM-9 Sidewinders. 
This was another American product, a short-range heat-seeking missile for use in closer quarters. Jafari figured that if this new object hurtling towards him had some kind of propulsion system, it would have to be emitting heat, so the Sidewinders would be able to track it down and destroy it. However, according to Jafari, I attempted to fire, and looked at the panel to confirm my selection of the missile. Suddenly, nothing was working. The weapons control panel was out, and I lost all the instruments on the radio. The indicator dials were spinning around randomly, and the instruments were fluctuating. At this point, I was even more frightened. I couldn't communicate with the tower, and had to scream to talk to my backseater. I thought, if it gets closer to me than four miles, I will have to eject before impact to avoid being in the area of the explosion. Jafari descended and turned to the left to avoid the new object, and after losing sight of it for a moment, he reacquired it as it appeared to return to and rejoin the main UFO. Then another object emerged from the UFO and started circling Jafari's jet. As this happened, his instruments and communications went on the fritz again. As this new object moved away, the electronics resumed functioning. At this point, Jafari was ordered to return to base. While they did so, two more small objects appeared to be tailing them. Jafari's backseater, Lieutenant Damarian, got a good look at one and reported that it looked like a thin rectangle with a light at each end and a small round dome on the top. Before they landed, Jafari claimed that he saw another object emerge from the main UFO and drop down to a dry lake bed about 15 miles away. As it did so, it lit up the ground where it landed. He called it into the control tower, who said that they had seen it as well. He was instructed to do a flyover of the area to investigate, and as he did so, the electronics in his Phantom stopped working again. He flew out of the area, and they started working. Then, Commander Jafari landed his plane at the base. When he reported to the tower, they informed him that the main UFO had suddenly disappeared, along with all of the smaller objects. The next day, Jafari gave a report to his superior officers, and to an American military liaison from the Air Force named Colonel Olin Mui. The American colonel mostly stayed quiet and took notes during Jafari's report, but after Jafari explained how he was unable to use his missiles against the objects, Jafari remembered Mui saying, You're lucky you couldn't fire. That's an ominous and odd thing to say, and after the debriefing, Jafari tried to locate Mui to get some clarification on that statement, but he was unable to find him. Instead, Jafari and Demarion were sent for a medical examination where nothing out of the ordinary was found. Assuming Jafari's recollection of the meeting is accurate, the statement by Colonel Moy is interesting, although ambiguous. It could simply have meant that Jafari was lucky his missiles didn't work because he would have been firing them at nothing over a crowded city for no good reason. Or it could have meant that Jafari was lucky that he couldn't fire because doing so could have put his plane in danger of some sort of retaliation from the UFO. In order to figure out what the sentence meant, we can switch from Jafari's account to Mui's notes, which were summarized in a memo to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and which have been declassified by the Defense Intelligence Agency. The memo mirrors the story that Jafari told Leslie Keen in 2007, which suggests that Jafari's testimony didn't change in the 30 years following this incident. There are no comments or analysis in the memo, simply a retelling of the events of the night. There is an added detail that a civilian airliner also experienced communication failures that night as they flew over Tehran. According to the memo, the next day a helicopter was sent out to the dry lake bed where the smaller object appeared to have landed, but there was nothing found to be out of the ordinary. 
there was a squawk signal coming from the area of the lake bed. This is sort of a homing beeper that is used by pilots who have bailed out of their planes to help rescuers find them. Nothing was found that would be causing the SOS transmission, however. When investigators interviewed the occupants of a nearby house, they reported seeing flashing lights and hearing loud noises during the previous night. The memo, based on Colonel Moy's notes, was widely distributed throughout American intelligence, and copies were sent to the DIA, the NSA, the CIA, and the White House. So, what are we to make of this incident? UFO debunker Philip J. Class devoted a chapter of his 1983 book, UFOs, The Public Deceived, to the incident, and he isn't too impressed by the whole thing. Class started an investigation of the Tehran UFO in July of 1977, He noted that there had been a rash of UFO sightings in Iran in the months leading up to the incident, so people might have been more likely to misidentify something ordinary as a UFO. Class also mentioned that uh, in one of Tehran's English-language newspapers, it states that none of the pilots reported seeing flashing lights, and at no time did any UFO appear to chase one of the Phantom Jets. In addition, the paper explained that none of the pilots attempted to fire on the UFO, and that the pilots didn't experience any electronic issues in their planes. Class also contacted technical representatives at McDonnell Douglas, the company which made the F-4 Phantom, and at Westinghouse, the company that made the radar for the fighter jet. Those representatives told Class that the American Air Force hadn't checked the F-4s for any mundane electrical issues that could have explained what happened, and that the Iranian technicians probably weren't trained well enough to maintain those complex jet fighters. In addition, the Westinghouse text suggested that the Iranian pilots probably didn't have too much experience with night flying, and that Lieutenant DeMarion was probably poorly trained, and had probably just mistaken his radar reading. Class also notes that September is the peak time for two annual meteor showers, and that Jupiter is very bright in the sky at that time of year. So ultimately, what Class argues is that the Iranian pilots, groggy from being woken up and scrambled and having little experience flying at night, mistook the planet Jupiter for a UFO, mistook a meteor shower for the smaller moving objects, and then their poorly maintained jet malfunctioned. Case closed. Uh, However, I'm going to reopen it because I have some issues with Class's analysis. According to his book, when he first reached out to try to interview an American government official about the incident, Class told the official right from Jump Street that he had ruled out the possibility of the UFO having an extraterrestrial origin. Class had clearly already made up his mind about what happened before he began his investigation. And what he's doing is he's trying to disprove a conclusion that he already disagrees with. When, when we do this, when we start with a conclusion that we want and move from there, we're going backwards. We should always try to go from evidence to conclusion, not the other way around. Because Class is already convinced of his position before he even starts his investigation, his investigation suffers from something called confirmation bias. He notices things that agree with his beliefs, and he doesn't notice things that challenge his beliefs. Like, if you think that people who drive Volkswagens are terrible drivers, and then you go out for a drive, you might pass 1,000 Volkswagen cars. And if 999 of those cars are being driven normally, you're not going to pay attention to them. But if there's just one of those Volkswagens that's being driven erratically... Because that one Volkswagen backs up what you already believe, you're going to notice that, and you're going to remember it. And then when you get home, you're going to say to yourself, see, I told you, people who drive Volkswagens drive terribly. 
there's a, there's a few examples of this confirmation bias with class's analysis of the Tehran incident. For example, although class has access to the official DIA memo, he disregards it and concentrates on that Tehran newspaper. As a result, his understanding of the events are inconsistent with what Jafari reported immediately after landing. Jafari and Damarian did mention seeing flashing lights. Jafari did report that the objects came towards him. Both F-4s reported electric issues, and Jafari did try to fire missiles during the incident. But because that newspaper gave Class what he wanted, he gave it more credibility and paid more attention to it, because it confirmed the conclusion he was trying to reach. In his book, Class claims that it wouldn't have made any sense for Jafari to fire his short-range heat-seeking AIM-9 Sidewinder missiles at the main UFO when it was too far out of range for those missiles to intercept it. Class gives us as evidence that Jafari was not a reliable witness. As Class writes, One thing is evident. The second F-4 crew was clearly rattled. This is obvious from their report that the target on the radar scope was at a range of 25 miles, but they were preparing to fire an AIM-9 air-to-air missile whose maximum range is only a couple of miles. Thus, their missile could not possibly have reached the target blip appearing on their radar. Class sees this as evidence that Jafari is wrong about what he saw. What this passage actually is, is evidence that Class's tunnel vision may have made his investigation sloppy. As it clearly states in the DIA memo and in Jafari's testimony, Jafari was trying to fire his sidewinders at the smaller object that was heading towards them once it had gotten into close range, not the main UFO 25 miles away. Which brings me to something that is irritating about investigating UFOs. And it's something that Captain Edward Ruppelt also found irritating and unhelpful when he was leading the UFO Project Blue Book in the early 1950s. He didn't want investigators who had already made their mind up one way or another. An investigator who already knows that there's no chance of a UFO having extraterrestrial origin will look at evidence with a biased eye. An investigator who has convinced themselves that UFOs are extraterrestrial in origin will do the same, but from the opposite bias. Neither bias is helpful to someone like Ruppelt, who was genuinely trying to figure out what was behind the UFO phenomenon. There's another aspect to the Tehran incident that highlights something else that has been bothering me for a while in the back of my mind. So many of the better documented UFO encounters are military in nature. This makes sense, of course. The phenomenon becomes widespread during the Cold War when radar dishes started sweeping the sky looking for incoming enemy bombers, and fighter planes became more sophisticated with new sensory and imaging technology. But missile locks and targeting radars aren't necessarily the best tools for investigating unknown phenomena. The same thing is true of more recent sightings, most of which have come from fighter pilots and military radar operators. If there are strange things in the sky, and at the time of this recording in May of 2021, that is no longer up for debate, why don't we send some scientific observers up instead of fighter pilots? When your tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When your tool is a fighter plane, everything looks like a target. The scientific community needs to become more involved and active with this situation. Returning to our inquiry at the beginning of the episode, is there anything about the Tehran incident that suggests that it might be something similar to what Navy pilots have been encountering over the ocean? There appear to be some similarities, some important differences, and too many unknowns to make a definitive conclusion. Certainly the sudden movements described by Jafari, coupled with a lack of the sonic boom that would normally accompany speeds of that velocity, do seem somewhat similar to what modern fighter pilots have described. 
However, there have been no recent reports that involved electrical failures, which featured so prominently in the Tehran incident. And the description by Lieutenant DeMarion of a flat rectangle with a dome on top doesn't seem to fit the more recent sightings of tic-tac-shaped UFOs. Whatever it is that U.S. Navy pilots have been encountering over the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans over the last few years, there doesn't seem to be an obvious connection between those and the Tehran UFO. So, in the end, what are we to make of this event? The DIA was intrigued by it, stating in an internal memo that This case is a classic that meets all the necessary conditions for a legitimate study of UFO phenomena. The memo goes on to point out that the object was seen by multiple witnesses in various locations and from various viewpoints. The credibility of the witnesses was strong. There was both visual and radar contact, and there were multiple aircraft which experienced electromagnetic effects. But there are also aspects of this story that don't make much sense. The squawk SOS beacon transmission that was heard, for example, that's a technology that would have come from a conventional human aircraft, not a mysterious UFO. There was an issue at the time with military transport aircrafts accidentally firing off SOS beacons when they encountered turbulence, and flying over the nearby mountain range would have provided plenty of that. So that squawk could have perhaps been thrown off a military transport plane that was flying through some choppy weather. And the electrical disturbances experienced by the planes, while intriguing and interesting, also raise questions. How could the UFO have affected the radios and instrumentation of the planes, but not interfere with the electrical components of the engine and fuel system? In addition, because the incident occurred at night when identification of objects is extremely difficult and establishing size and distance becomes problematic, the eyewitness testimony of the pilots and the tower staff may well be honest, but mistaken. Ultimately, we don't have enough evidence to accept this as an extraterrestrial encounter. And we certainly don't have enough evidence to just dismiss it as a combination of incompetence and negligence. This event, like so many of the events we look at, has to go in the large pile in the middle of incidents about which we know too little to properly assess them. But while that ever-growing pile is a little irritating, maybe it's a little helpful as well. Because the larger our uncertain pile grows, the less the chances that we become arrogant or complacent. And maybe it prevents us from starting to think that we have a handle on this huge, strange universe in which we find ourselves. Having said that, we're going to continue, particularly for the next few months, trying our best to shrink that pile down a little whenever we can. <laughs>